Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archive and beyond. In fact, like both pages. Well, I am so excited about the show tonight. I have a wonderful group of individuals who have joined forces to identify and honor African Americans in Alexandria, Virginia. In fact, they've written a book entitled African Americans of Alexandria, Virginia, Beacons of Light in the 20th Century. What an outstanding and wonderful title for a book. Now, this show will explore this new book, and they're going to talk about the telling narratives of trials and triumph as Alexandria's African-Americans helped to shape not only their hometown, but also the world around them. Well, my guests, and it's five of them, are Char McCargo-Barr, and she is a professional genealogist for the Alexandria Legacies Freedman Cemetery Descendants Project of the City of Alexandria, an author and a public speaker. Audrey T. Davis is currently the acting director of the Alexandria Black History Museum and has been employed by the City of Alexandria for over 20 years. Gwendolyn Brown Henderson is a native Alexandrian and retired United States government worker. James E. Henson Sr. is a retired attorney who grew up in Alexandria. Krista Waters is a freelance writer and editor who has lived in Alexandria for 30 years. Now, this group, as I said, came together to document the history of African Americans who were agents of change and served as beacons of light in Alexandria in the 20th century. So let me give a warm welcome to all of my wonderful guests from research at the National Archives and beyond. And we're going to start off tonight's discussion with Audrey P. Davis. Audrey, welcome. Thank you, Bernice. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. It's a pleasure to have you as well as the others. 
Well, why don't you tell us about the African Americans of Alexandria, Virginia's project? Well, I think our book, I think all of the authors would consider this a labor of love. This was something we really enjoyed doing and something that was also very long overdue in Alexandria. We have an amazing history of African-American accomplishment, and this project, which started in uh, late 2011, grew out of uh, uh, the Charles Houston Ad Hoc Naming Committee in Alexandria, and that was a group of people who were tasked with recognizing the achievements of African-Americans in the city, and 63 uh, nominations came in of narratives of men and women who really made a difference. And in our book, we're looking at these men and women from 1920 to 1925 who've really contributed so much to the city of Alexandria. And you say you have 63, you had 63 nominations? Did I hear that 63, correctly? 63 nominations, na- and 63 narratives in our, well, we had more nominations, but 63 narratives in our book. People who really made a difference during difficult times and trials, and it's it's an amazing story. There's so many stories that people don't know about, so many firsts in, in Alexandria's history, especially in the African-American community. And this is the first book that really has compiled these accomplishments uh, together in one place and have talked about these people who really fought to make a difference in small and in very large ways, too. Well, you know, I, for those people who really don't understand or even know where Alexandria, Virginia is, why don't you help us or at least tell us what do we need to know and understand about African Americans in Alexandria, Virginia? Well, Africans in Alexa- African Americans in Alexandria, uh, Virginia, have an amazing story. I mean, Alexandria is a seaport town founded in 1749. We're in part of Northern Virginia. But we have an amazing history that spans not only the colonial era, uh, through the present day. African Americans were a part of it all from the very beginning. Um, Early on in the 18th century, there was a free black population in Alexandria. More African Americans came in during the Civil War. We also had African Americans who were participating during, even earlier during the War of 1812. So we really span um, all periods of time. And we contributed not only to the architecture of Alexandria, Virginia, but to the building of this terrific city that really is a wonderful place to live. But we had, like any city in America, racial difficulties, struggles during the age of segregation. But the African-American community from the Civil War on persevered and survived and often was living a life that was parallel to the white community. Uh, but they also were able to achieve and have these incredible accomplishments and make a community that where families were able to not only um, be prosperous, but also in some ways to just achieve more than what I think a lot of people thought could happen during the era of segregation. Um, and you have African Americans in Alexandria who are breaking barriers, breaking down walls, and making the city a better place to live for everyone. Yes, well, it just sounds like it was a very outstanding uh, group of people who did so much to contribute to making Alexandria uh, what it is today. So why don't you just share with us, when did your group decide to write a book? I think I was talking to Shar about this the other day, and I think we, Shar had the idea that these, narratives could become a book, and I think it was probably late 2011 that the idea germinated, but actually it is, it's been sort of a two-year project overall, but a lot of the most intensive work when we received the book contract from History Press was in that last year. Uh, but we all, of the five authors, we all really worked well together as a group. I think we get along really well together. We like each other. We're friends. And I think that makes a project like this so much better because it's collaborative, and so you're able to really focus on, on the core details. Right. Well, now you brought up the word collaborative. Now, you or any of the uh, guests can say a little bit more about what is it like to work on a collaborative. Well, can I um, chime in? This is Krista, Krista Waters. And I think it means that everybody does the, the part that they're more expert at. 
and and we all maybe compromised on some of the details we thought were important, but it was important to meet our deadlines together and to make sure that we were all carrying our weight. Sure, and that's yeah. that's what a collaborative is all about. Jim, were you going to say something? Yes, I was going to say that in writing a book, you have extensive um, research, editing, uh, and there are a lot of instructions that come from the publisher. And on the research, Char was very uh, much the center of the research, and and Krista did uh, the bulk of the editing. Uh, the uh, the uh, three of us, Audrey, uh, Gwen, and myself, we we did uh, editing also, and, and we all, as Krista likes to say, uh, we need more eyes on, we need all eyes on the editing. And uh, so, you know, when you put those functions, um, you separate them and, and then you bring them together, that's another form of, uh, of collaboration. Oh, May absolutely. I say one more thing, Bernice? I wanted absolutely. to say that Jim, Jim Henson and Gwen brought the strength of really, really close knowledge of the community, who to contact when you needed information, how to get to that cousin of the, of the person who was hard to find, that sort of interest. And, and, of course, Audrey has a lot of background in history. And that, combined with Char's outstanding research abilities, made the project all come together. So basically what you're saying, everybody, everyone had a role to play in, exactly. in this collaborative and making this book a success. Absolutely. Correct. Yes. Well, that is wonderful because one of the things that people need to understand that a collaborative is just that. It's not one person calling all the shots and making a decision, but it's it's a lot of group interactions that must take place, and people do play roles, as, as you have just said. Well, Krista, let's talk a little bit about the role that you played. Well, as an editor, uh, Mr. Henson brought me in to help with editing. I had been the editor of the Alexandria Gazette Packet, our little local weekly newspaper, some years before. And I have written about uh, for other projects as a volunteer in the city, and I have a small business. So that's really my strength is copy editing and and imposing consistency on the format of the narratives to some extent. But I really also wanted to talk about why I love the project, which was that it's a it's a collection of stories, and really, I think story drives um, our interest in history. If it's just the facts and the dates and the numbers, it's not so appealing to people. What makes it come to life is these individual stories, and I think it was seeing this collection of stories in their various lengths and so forth that fed the germ of making it into a book because we didn't want all that research and all that care and all those facts and documents to go to waste. And I would like to say that um, the facts we have gathered will be archived in Alexandria's Black History Museum and Audrey's collections for future workers on the history of Alexandria's African-American community to base their research on. And I think that's also an important contribution. Well, that sounds like a wonderful contribution. Well, Audrey, let me just ask you another question. Well, how is the book organized? Well, we have nine chapters, and they cover topics like law, the arts, medicine, civic and community, science, business, sports, religion, and military. And then we we talk about the people in those chapters who were really making a difference. And and we each took a turn writing the chapter introductions um, for the different segments. And I think that these people have really become like family to us over the time that we've worked on these narratives. And... I certainly agree with Krista. These are stories, and they're really, truly amazing stories. And you learn something every time you read them. I, there's a little detail here. And even though we've worked on the book, every time I go back to it, I, I learn something new. What, well, how exciting that is, though. Now, because, you know, you said you had all these nominees and you made a decision as to how many would uh, actually uh, go into the book, what criteria? did you use to select individuals for inclusion into this book? I was involved rather early. This is Jim. I was involved rather rather early, and and I uh, played a part in in writing up the criteria. 
and and we had uh, basically five criteria, and they can be summarized uh, pretty much as uh, people who participated in the struggle. And we're talking about a time period, 1920 to 1965, um, essentially. Uh, the struggle to advance African Americans economically, socially, educationally, and religiously. And uh, also uh, someone who made a contribution, uh, an innovation, or made an identifiable impact on Alexandria's African-American community. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a, a third would be uh, person who made, persons who made efforts that were an inspiration to others. And, um, and, and the last would be any combination uh, of the foregoing uh, and uh, the excellence of their achievements for posterity. Now, in my case, that translates personally, uh, those translate into uh, persons who brought us through the period of legal segregation. I'm the oldest member of the group. I'm 76. I'll be 77, the 23rd of October. But um, the people, a number of the people in this book are people who personally inspired me and, and basically caused me to look up rather than down, look up at the high standard that they set through their activities, as, as Audrey said, whether it be sports, uh, medicine. My, I mean, my doctor, Dr. West, was the first African-American to play in the Rose Bowl. And, uh, um, and, and, and I call him the Red Doctor because he was very light-skinned, and uh, they didn't know he was black. Audrey will go into more detail on that. My mentor was Ferdinand Day. Um, you've seen the movie, remember the Titans? He was the chairman of the school board in that movie that recruited Coach Boone uh, from a high school in North Carolina. He was he wrote a letter for me to go to, to go to law school. I asked Ferdinand, I said, Ferdinand, I wanted you to write a letter for me. Uh, he wrote the letter, I guess, uh, on a level of where he saw me. And... Uh, I didn't see myself at that level, so I was a little, I was a little puzzled. And, 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 uh, but at any rate, uh, you know, the people in the, the book inspired myself and others to not be um, downtrodden, to feel uh, depressed or, or, or too angry with segregation because they were setting, as the book is titled, they were like beacons of light brightening up the darkness of legal segregation for us to see truth and, and merit and, and character and values. So um, that's the criteria and, and how it affected me personally. Well, you that put that so beautifully, Jim. Area. I mean, just, oh, I'm just so excited just to hear you talk about seasons of light and what what a wonderful, I guess, tribute to the individuals in, in Alexandria to have been selected and to have a document that will go on forever, that folks will be able to pick up this book and see the beacons of light. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue this discussion. Just a quick break, everybody.
and when she mentioned when y'all mentioned book, it was like, wow, uh, I don't know. <laughs> we hadn't thought about that, but but y'all took the book um, by the well, I, I want to say by the tail, but at any rate, she took the book idea and ran with it, and and, and she got a publisher, and, uh, and 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 the requirements that we had to meet. Uh, she wrote checklists for all the books, and uh, and we followed them, and. Uh, I mean, uh, it was um, uh, it was very good following in the lead of of uh, the lady and the ladies. Uh, maybe the Congress should take a hint from that. Uh, it seems like when they give the ladies a chance, things happen even at the national level. But uh, I was basically, like I said, uh, uh, I guess a, a chair and a bodyguard uh, and, and and old folks in the group. Okay, well that is wonderful. Well, let's uh let's move on and we're going to hear from Gwen Brown. Gwen, I'm going to bring you on uh in a second. Okay, Gwen, why don't you share yes, with I'm us here. the role you played? Yes. Why don't you share with us the role that you played in the book? Since we're talking to okay. all of the collaborators, it's just so wonderful that each of you uh, contributed. Well, as you know, there were 63 African-Americans selected, and I nominated five of those African-Americans. I felt that these African-Americans made a great impact in the community. Um, The two people that I particularly want to recognize were two civic activists, and they were Helen Anderson Miller and Elsie Charity Taylor. Um, after after getting um, information, um, I well actually I started my research after I got the names. I contacted family members, local churches, and surfed the internet to obtain the history on each individual. Yes, you can go ahead on. Okay, and so from there. Um, we put together narratives on the ones that we selected, and um, um, we edited, uh, we proofed and edited the, um, the the final pieces, and then we we went from there. I guess Char uh, decided that we were going to go ahead with the book. But let me just okay. say this: um, I wanted to bring out that uh, Helen Miller and Elsie Taylor, the two civic activists, were on a mission. And that was to bring social change to the community. Um, their vision was to care for the senior citizens, ABU, and care for those that were less fortunate. And, you know, they have a lot of um, things that they did in the community, and I'm telling you, it is just amazing. It's just, just amazing the things that they did back in, in um, you know, during that time. Give us an example. Okay, for an example... Elsie um, Charity Taylor Jordan uh, was a sheriff in, in Alexandria, and she sort of mentored to the um, the young women that were incarcerated there, and they were on drugs. And back in the 70s, uh, she decided that she was going to establish a methadone program in the Alexandria Health Department, and she did that. And they, those kids, those young children, young adults, were um, uh, they got clean, they were clean, and they were able to go on with their lives and become uh, good citizens in the community. Oh, wow. That is, that's wonderful. Anybody else you'd like to, to share um, an accomplishment? Uh, Helen Anderson Miller was a civic activist and a leader in many fronts in Alexandria. She was a member of the Alexandria Economic Opportunities Commission where she helped to organize a daycare in the community. Uh, she was also a member of the city task force to help build a new detention center in Alexandria, as well as um, being a member of the Alexandria Democratic Committee uh, to fundraise and build the new Alexandria Hospital. And um, also she was one of the first black African Americans in the community to have a park named after her. Well, that those is things, 
those things were just, you know, I was just so amazed to even find that information out about that because I didn't really know know that. And so as you started researching, you said you, you talked to family members, you, you did what else? I talked to family members. Um, I contacted local churches, and I surfed the Internet to get uh, information about these two ladies. And how long did it take you to gather all of this information? Well, it took a while because, you know, I had to, uh, I was trying to get pictures and I was trying to get a piece of, um, uh, you know, information from the, from the family members. It, it took, I wanted to say it took me about um, a month to get that. To gather it that information? A, yes, to get that information. Right. And then how long did it take you to just write it up uh, for the Well, for the book? We, I think we all decided that we were only going to do 250 words or less. So, you know, I, I immediately went to work and tried to do my, my, uh, my, my narrative. It didn't take me long to do that. It didn't take me long okay. because some of the information uh, some of the family members uh, gave me. Oh, okay. Well, let's uh, talk to Char. Char, you have been mentioned several times. And so why don't you kind of tell us your contribution to uh, to the group and, and just say as much as you need us to understand about the role that a genealogist would play uh, as part of this collaborative. Okay, Bernice. Thank you very much for having us also. Um, I came to the group. I was the last person to come to the group. Um, and um, when I came, many of the... Um, People were already nominated um, that they were going to use, and um, I saw that it was a bigger story there. So um, I um, asked the group whether they'd be interested in the book, and um, it was it was four other people who thought that maybe possible we can do the book, and so we broke off into our subgroup, and it was five of us. As a genealogist, I think I brought to the group um, uh, my research skills. And, and locating additional information on the uh, 63 people. Um, and I used a lot of newspapers and, and the uh, normal genealogical methods of researching uh, vital, statistics, vital statistics, census information, uh, locating descendants. Because um, I grew up, I was born in Alexandria, and I grew up in Alexandria. But to tell you the truth, I knew nothing about, I didn't, the people that we wrote about, I didn't know. I didn't know these people when I when I was growing up, and that's sad. I don't think I think I only knew about Dr. West because my father uh, used him as a doctor. But most of the people in the book, no, I did not know about. So it was that was also amazing to me that all these people existed in in the environment that I grew up in, and I did not know about them. Um, so what happened is that I located descendants. I went out to their houses. I took my computer. I took my scanner, and actually scanned pictures. And our publisher wanted us to have at least, um, I think he wanted up to 50-something pictures for the book. And I think um, we were able to come up with like 98 pictures. Some of the pictures were cut because of the um, um, they didn't meet the specifications um, for the publisher, but basically we were able to uh, meet the um, requirement. One of the things I can say about uh, being together and working as a group is that um, everybody who at the table have to bring in their skills and nobody should be um, really um, trying to outshine everybody else. The important thing about working as a group is the project and everybody yeah. uh, should work towards that project and not trying to have uh, personal agendas and um, trying to undermine each other. So um, that's one of the things that we were lucky to have, that, that none of us came in with those personal agendas, and it was about the project. Uh, the deadlines were challenging. Um, they came so fast. We thought we had a lot of time, and all of a sudden the deadlines looked like they were coming so fast, but we met every deadline. We were not late with any of um, um, our um, uh, pieces of the pie when we had to submit to the publisher. Um, also, one thing I can say as a genealogist, um, that we have the skills 
to write the book, but if you're going to do nonfiction, you can't write it in a genealogy way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for instance, um, first generation, second generation, second remove or whatever, if you're going to yeah. go for a mainstream publisher and you want to make it available to the public, interesting to the public and not just to genealogy people, and you're going to have to write it in a story format, in a narrative or biographical format. We have that. Sometimes we don't realize how much we have until we put ourselves to test, and that's what mainstream publishers are looking for. Many of them will not publish genealogical uh, material unless you go to a genealogical publishing company. So that's one thing you have to do. And then doing the research to find the uh, the publishing uh, company, you um, – um, that was um, not as challenging as I thought it was. I took a course for like $129. I'm always taking classes. And it was the best spent $129 because it was an author who taught the class, and it was all online, and she actually said that um, went step by step in how to get a publisher, the research you do for a publisher, what you're looking for. It's almost like a marriage. You're going out looking for a man. you got to dress. <laughs> you know what type of man you want. <laughs> you have to dress up <laughs> and everything and do what you have to do to get that man. So the same thing when you're looking for a publisher. If you're going to self-publish, you know exactly what you want, how you want it to look and everything. If you're going to go mainstream, you have to take your product and match it with the publisher. So you don't take um, a nonfiction book and go looking for a fiction publisher, you know. And so that's uh, uh, one of the things that I was able to gain from that particular class I took. And so um, the journey was interesting. It was fast. It was like, oh, my God, i got to be retired before I do the next book because it was just so fast moving. And I don't know whether I would have been able to keep up with all the deadlines if, if I wasn't working in a group setting. It was just the deadlines was just coming so fast. So the collaborative made it possible. That's what you sound yes. like you're saying. Yes. Wow. I mean, if you're working and full-time, you know, the thing about it, I still work full-time. And so um, the, my, I'm working on my next book, and I'm going to be retired when the time comes for the edits. But um, when you're working full-time, you, you're juggling a whole lot of things. And like I said, you don't want to mess up with a with with a publishing company that backed you with their money. Now, if I was self-publishing, I, I still would have the deadlines, but I have more flexibility. Where when when I when I'm with the, when you having a um, a publishing company that put their money up, they uh, give you the deadlines. They can drop you if you don't meet, meet your deadlines, and you would ne- probably never get to publish with them again. So. You've got to be ready, and you have to know what you're getting yourself into when you approach when you um, when you get that contract. Right, right. Well, I just want to say to the chatters and also to the people on the line, if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, uh, please call six four six two zero 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 four nine one and press one. Uh, to, to all of the the, the speakers. I just want you to know that I do encourage individuals to call in because they may have questions or comments that they would like to to uh, share with you. But I'm just going to open up the lines for all of you and, and throw out a question, and it's to everybody, and I hope you all are prepared to, to respond. As you were working on this book, what surprised you? as you conducted your research, what surprised you? And anybody can, can chime in. I can tell you one thing. that This is Jim Henson. One of the things that surprised me was that for most of the period of this book, Alexandria had a very small population, uh, about 33,000 people. And um, you mentioned earlier in the show um um, Bernie's about the um, the national significance uh, of some of the achievements, and two come to mind right away. One took place in the military, and I'll make this kind of short because I want to get the other one uh, to help the sports fans out. But Leo Brooks, okay, uh, he was born uh, August the ninth, nineteen thirty-two. Uh, He's the only Parker Gray High School graduate 
to reach the rank of general. But he didn't stop there. He had two sons. Both of them became generals. And as of today, one of his sons, uh, Vincent Brooks, is a four-star general. He's commander of the army in the Pacific. Uh, Leo um, was an outstanding high school student, and, um, and he went to Virginia State University. He became president of his fraternity, president of the Student Government Association, and student conductor of the college band. Uh, I mean, he, he had an outstanding early career, and he, and he went on to become a general. Um, and, and this is a distinction that's not shared with any. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the book on page 104, it, um, it says, Leo and his two sons have accomplished a national milestone. Um, they are the only African-American family in the history of our nation to have a father and two sons become generals in any military service. This is an Alexandria homeboy. Now, just to get the other one real quickly, um, uh, the question is, does anyone remember when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball? Well, three years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball, which was 1947, uh, and four years before the Brown versus Board of Education lawsuit, uh, which integrated uh, America's schools, which was 1954, Earl Lloyd, Alexandria native, made history in basketball. Uh, Earl Francis Lloyd, a graduate of Little Parker Gray High School in Alexandria, he was the first African-American to actually play in the NBA. And I hate to uh, hurt anybody's heart from uh, Chicago or New York or Los Angeles or any of the big, even Washington, D.C., any of the big cities, but the first black to play in the NBA came, graduated from Parker Gray in Alexandria. Yes, and so this is something that people will gather uh, as far as gaining knowledge of some of the first from uh, Alexandria, Virginia in your book. Well, what about some of the others? Can you share what surprised you as you conducted your research in Alexandria? Uh, One I have to say is um, Mr. James Fortune who's mentioned in the book, and Mr. James Fortune, it was one of the um, members of the um, of the group that um, that we mentioned her in the contribution, Mrs. Bernice Lee. She insisted that um, that we should have Mr. James Fortune in the book, and Mr. James Fortune was he was just um, he was just an ordinary man um, based on his granddaughter. He was quiet and everything, but he did something that the Parker Gray students. Um, remembered even to this day. And then Parker Gray closed as a high school in 1965. So we're talking about people that are in their 60s or more as far as who attended Parker Gray High School. I went there when it was a middle school. Well, what happened with Mr. James Fortune is that Parker Gray first started off as an elementary school, only went up to maybe, I think, the seventh grade. And then in the 1930s, it um it became a high school, and it was um, an all-black high school. And um, the city of Alexandria wanted to kind of add and put high school onto the school, so it wanted to name Parker Gray Parker Gray Negro High School. Well, Mr. James Fortune was a janitor at uh, Parker Gray, and he risked his job by getting up on the ladder and taking paint and white out the name. Negro, because he did not want the students to be stigmatized by that, but knowing that they attended a Negro school. They just wanted to be known that Parker Gray was a high school. And he's remembered by all of the students who um, actually was there for that transition from elementary to high school, and they uh, were, uh, was very proud of him for doing that. 
He was a quiet man, but he he made history among those students. And he made a very brave move yes. to get on that ladder and do what he did. Well, what about the others? Any surprise that you have um, found as you conducted Krista? your research? Um, when I May I chime in? Yeah, go ahead, Krista. I wanted to say that uh, Char wrote the introduction to the history of the business community. And one of the things she said that really surprised me was that in, even in the 19th century, there were more African-American-owned businesses in Alexandria than there are today. And, of course, when you think about it, that's obvious because they were not allowed to trade in many segregated white businesses. So the more enterprising among them, some of them lent money to each other because they couldn't get loans from banks. But they started businesses and succeeded. And, in fact, I want to tell a little story about Mr. Leon C. Baltimore, Jr., he lived from 1910 to 1994, and he started, uh, he was an electric, a licensed electrical contractor, and he started um, a, a company called Baltimore Radio and Electric on South Washington Street, which is sort of our main north-south street. In segregated times in Alexandria, his firm was the one that was called upon to install the first sound system in City Hall Chambers, and also in the Capitol Theater, and he amplified for the Daughters of the American Re Revolution when they did wreath-laying ceremonies at Mount Vernon. And I just thought that was an example of really triumphing above adversity and showing that excellence matters even in times when people are not regarded as equal. And this was a man who really, really contributed outstandingly to Alexandria's civic life, life on the side, active in the NAACP and in Hopkins House, which was a charitable organization that benefited children and so on. So that was one of my surprises, was to learn about this whole parallel business community. Yes, and that's new information that everyone will learn about. Well, let me just find out, when are you speaking so that others can know uh, how to uh, find you, uh, if they want to hear you, just, just lay out your speaking engagement for us. Um, our, um, our speaking engagement, uh, we have one this coming Saturday. We'll be at Metro Stage, which is a theater uh, uh, um in Alexandria, Virginia, and we'll be uh, signing books there before the matinee. And then we'll be at Rob, that's going to be this Saturday, and that's around 2 o'clock. And um, the other one is going to be at the Roberts Memorial Methodist Church in Alexandria, I think in the 600 block of Washington Street. And we'll be there at 1 o'clock after their service, and we'll be signing books there also. But also you can go on to our um, our, um, our blog, which is um, uh, www.changeagents818.wordpress.com and click on calendars of events, and we keep that updated. And also I've been posting it on, um, on uh, Facebook as well. Right. Actually, on Facebook, uh, book, you're also posting questions. What kind of response are you getting from the social media? Well, uh, the questions that I uh, post, uh, I, my hope was that many Alexandrians uh, would buy the book and that they would have a better appreciation of the history because Alexandria uh, is losing their African-American population. Um, is, um, uh, Alexandria is becoming like Georgetown. <laughs> so uh, what is happening is that many uh, people like myself, when I was growing up, did not know the rich history that Alexandria um, had. So my hope was to uh, post questions out there to see whether people actually are reading the book and whether they can answer it. And um, basically they are, and I get responses, um, and they answer the, uh, each question I use. These are questions from one of the narratives, and then and people post, and then I post the list of people who got the uh, question correct. Okay. Well, 
first of all, that's a wonderful strategy to find out uh, who's reading the book and what and how they can respond to those questions. But we also have a caller with a question, and that's area code 214. you have a question or a comment? Yes. Hi, Bernice. Um, Hello. This is Barbara, one of your favorite listeners. Um, I have a comment. I would like to first congratulate um, your, all of your speakers from Alexandria. You know, over the years I used to travel uh, to Alexandria for training when I worked for United Way of America, uh, well, worked in the United Way system and trained at United Way of America and really never, you know, being an out-of-towner, never knew anything about the African-American community in Alexandria, Virginia. You know, you go through Old Town and you hear about, you know, Colonial and George Washington and those people. So this is just so refreshing. Um, I really enjoyed all of the stories, all of the comments. And as I, as I sit here, it's very motivational, and I keep thinking, you know, how the history of African Americans around the country through genealogy is being rewritten uh, by African Americans. And I just want to commend your, your, um, your guests for the work that they've done and on their book. And then I want to plug you because you will be speaking, Bernice, um, uh, this weekend in New Orleans at La Creole, Louisiana Creole, which is another genealogical uh, research organization. Uh, so I just want to, you know, make that plug and, again, congratulate your speakers. Thank you so much for your program. Well, thank you. And, and you're so right as far as the, um, the guests are concerned. They, they have put information uh, together that will help so many people understand the role that African Americans play in Alexandria, but it's very motivating, as, as the uh, caller has just said. And so do you all have any comments? Uh, speakers about the comment and what your book, your collaborative can mean to others as they also explore the role that African Americans play in their community. Uh, well, Bernice, uh, I'm sorry. This is Char. Oh, go ahead, Audrey. Oh, I'm sorry. I, Bernice, I just wanted to say that, I mean, we appreciate the caller's comment and we hope that our book will spur others to investigate their own community history and to piggyback on what Mr. Henson was saying the, uh, when Jim was talking about with the Brooks family being a first and Earl Lloyd, but we have also two, Samuel Tucker, who staged our first, uh, what we think may be one of the earliest sit-ins of the modern civil rights movement. We have um, Dr. West, who's the first African-American quarterback to play in the, in the Rose Bowl. But we, we have so many firsts, and Alexandria is a great city of firsts. We have right now our first African-American city manager, uh, first African-American mayor. The head of our library system is African-American. Our head of our police force is African-American, and our newly appointed school um, board chairman is African-American. So it really and is a unique place to live. And our city attorney is yes. African-American as well. So it's a very unique place to live and with such a rich history and so many really intriguing stories that, that students just don't hear, that in 1922 an African-American was playing at, uh, in the Rose Bowl or Earl Lloyd playing in the NBA. They, they know about the current players, but they don't know the ones who paved the way before. Why, That's why? true. There was also a jazz musician who... Um, Graduated from Parker Gray, I believe, and who was who who did much of the musical um, arrangements and programming for Arena Stage, one of the renowned regional Arthur theaters. Arthur Dawkins, yeah, Arthur Dawkins. Yeah, Arthur Dawkins. So, I just want to also say that one of the the joys that Char mentioned was like the story of Mr. Fortune, is that some of these stories are also the stories of ordinary people, but who lived in such difficult times and yet remained decent and did not let their bitterness damage their lives and who were always giving inspiration to their children to pursue excellence in education. 
And I think that some of those are the strongest stories. There was a cafeteria worker named Lois Hundley who joined a suit in 1958 to have their children allowed to attend schools that had been previously white because integration was so slow in coming in the schools, especially in the state of Virginia, which engaged in the policy of massive resistance. She and her co-litigants uh, co, uh, won the suit, but because the school board found, or the school system found out that a cafeteria worker of theirs had joined it on behalf of her children. She was fired. She lost her job. So there was the kind of ordinary heroism that we don't often hear about. And when older people come to our presentations, we've had a number of presentations and signings, they will say, you know, we have been remiss. We haven't told our children these stories. So I think that's yeah. another thing that the, the book can be used for. Right, and what a wonderful contribution, especially, I'm sure, I mean, I heard you say that the African-American community is slowly uh, leaving the community. I mean, your, your community is becoming more of like a Georgetown. And so if you don't write the history, then there won't be a history to pass on to others. And so yes. you have asked, go ahead. Yes, um, that's true, uh, Bernice. And one of the other things too, I wanted to bring out is that um, in my family, we all we always said everybody have more than one job, but truly everybody in that in the book that we wrote had multiple careers. And you know, when you look at the federal government closing down and people can't make it to the next paycheck, these people had multiple jobs. So if you know they. They they not only were uh, worked on a day job, they had a little business on the side. They were leaders in their community. They were leaders in their church, and you would think they never they they were never able to go to sleep. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. they had multiple multiple careers wrapped up in one. Where today most people just talk about one career, and so um, it shows others that. If you can't make it in one field, you might be able to make it in another field. You can still be a leader. If you're not a leader in your job, you can be a leader in your community. You can be a leader in your mm-hmm. church because they did it. They did it. And, I mean, those stories are so shared. You share so much resilience and you share commitment that the people of Alexandria had, the African-American people of Alexandria had to the community. Well, I just would like each of you, and I will start with Audrey, if you had to share a parting word about this collaborative book, what would you tell people? I would encourage people to, to pick up a copy of her books. I think it's a fascinating read. And I would also encourage all the researchers out there, I mean, I never thought that I would be working on a book or or be part of a book collaboration, and to see what they can do in their communities. Um, Many of your listeners I know are genealogists, researchers. Everyone has amazing stories in their community, so I would just encourage them to find their stories too and share them. Um, I love reading about other other stories in other areas, and I think our book um, goes beyond Alexandria and has lessons to teach for people in, in every part of the United States. Okay, and Krista? I would say also that it is important to tell the stories, and it's important to take pride in them and to remember um, that you, you can do more than you think you can. Everybody can tell a story, and if you need help, then Follow our in our footsteps and do a collaboration. Yes. And James? Yes. Uh, I would uh, urge the audience and readers to take particular note of how the way the book is organized, it enhances careers and um, vocations. For example, in, in every community um, of, of size, uh, you will notice that there will be there will be artists, there will be business persons, uh, there will be people involved in the community, which is uh, very important uh, to develop. There will be uh, lawyers, judges, there will be doctors, there will be uh, military persons, persons involved in the military, uh, there will be preachers, uh, there will be scientists, um, and, and there will be athletes. These Stories kindle uh, an interest in these in the individuals who have involved themselves in these endeavors. 
So it could be a good career spark to uh, a number of our young people who are, uh, who are looking for something uh, to get involved in. Okay. And uh, Gwen? I would encourage our listeners to go out and purchase this book because there are a lot of good stories in this book that talk about our forefathers, and I believe that uh, they would be um, very, um, I mean, the book is just good. That's all I can say about it. The book is a good book. Great. It's Char. Yes. um, I can say about our book is that Though we wrote about people in Alexandria, we also um, must say that most of these people who had college education attended Howard University uh, or attended one of the um, black universities. And so um, they are just not our folks. They are D.C. folks as well. And because Alexandria, when it became a high school, it only went to the 11th grade. It did not have a 12th grade. So in order to get a 12th grade education, Many of uh, the African Americans went into D.C. and went to Armstrong or, or Dunbar to um, get their education, and many of them went on to Howard um, University. So it um, it touches not just Alexandria, but tells you how how they were so thirsting for education and make a better life. They did what they had to do. And um, even stories in there how one of, uh, I think it was um, Baker Jackson, um, Baker was a nickname because he was a baker, but he drove his kids to Washington, D.C. to school every day, and then he would come back, and then he would work in his bakery, and then he would go back to Washington, D.C. to pick them up and bring them home. So that's how important education um, was to the people in our book. And so it's very interesting how some people just throw it away today and take it as a joke. But these people really, really, really knew that in order to be able to advance, they needed to have higher education. Right. So you all, all of you, have presented some of the unique qualities of a community, but you've gone a step further. You have focused specifically on the African Americans in your community and the contributions that they have made, and you have put it in writing something that will live on long after the community changes. And so for that, I want to thank you so very much for coming on the show tonight. Well, I hope that everyone will tune in next Thursday for another interesting show, The Barbados and Carolina's Connection with Rhoda Green. Now, did you know that most Barbadians today are unaware or disinterested about their linkage to the Carolinas? However, Rhoda Green recognizes that the past impacts the present each day. The present, however, can promote forgetfulness, ignorance, and sometimes denial. This reality motivates her to provide a vehicle for sharing collaboration, there's that word again, and an opportunity to better understand this shared history and the lessons learned from it. This inspiration and passion influenced her decision to become the founder and chair of development for the Barbados and Carolina Legacy Foundation. Mrs. Green was born in Barbados, West Indies, and resides in Charleston, South Carolina, with her husband and children. And she currently serves as the honorary consul for Barbados in South Carolina. So I hope that all of you will tune in next week. And yes, as one of the callers just said, I am broadcasting from New Orleans. And I will be speaking on Saturday at the La Creole Conference. So for those of you who are in New Orleans, I hope to see you on Saturday. So for everyone, I'd like to say good night. Thank you, the authors, the change agents of Alexandria, Virginia. And remember, the ancestors do leave footprints. That's right. 
footprints that can result in a wonderful, fantastic book entitled African Americans for Alexandria, Virginia, Beacons of Life. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also, as I mention every week, we definitely want you to tune in and listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. And don't forget Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Bennett, BB's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC. Good night, everyone. Good night, my special, special guest. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.